This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We're spending the week talking about the digital divide and who better to speak to than Blair Levine, the man who served as the executive director in charge of the creation of the National Broadband Plan under the Obama administration. I'm Roger Chang, and this is your Daily Charge. Blair, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So the National Broadband Plan was unveiled in 2010 uh, by President Obama's FCC. It called for 100 million people to have actual download speeds of at least 100 megabits per second, and for every American to have access to robust broadband service by 2020. The 2020 now, and we're clearly sure of these goals, but talk a little bit about what you think the state of broadband in America is like right now. Um, well, I think you could look at it as a good news, bad news story. And I think COVID really uh, taught us a lot about it. Uh, on the good news side, when you look at, when we were doing the national broadband plan, the average download speed was 4.1 megabits. Today, the average download speed is in roughly speaking 130, 140 uh, category. So the fact that we're doing this over broadband, we're doing this interview, um, the kids are taking classes, using this kind of technology that people are working remotely, that actually would not have been possible in 2010. But as COVID revealed, and as, as we knew, there are pockets where we are still falling way short. Uh, very critically, we have literally millions, I think about 17 to 18 million school children who cannot attend classes remotely. So that's a big problem. Um, we have 40% of rural residents not having internet in their homes. Some of that is because the networks don't reach rural areas, sometimes because the FCC in the last few years funded inadequate networks in trying to connect rural areas. Um, but a big problem is affordability and adoption. And we still have, for example, about one third of uh, homes that have incomes of less than 50,000, as well as one third uh, of Black, Hispanic, Native American families. Uh, one third of those homes don't have broadband. You cannot be part of this economy, the society, civic engagement, et cetera, without broadband now. So that's a, that's a problem we need to address. Got it. And, and when you were drafting the plan or were helping to make this plan a reality back in 2009, 2010, how much did, of it did you actually get expect to get that accomplished? Well, the plan, which runs about 400 pages, has about 200 recommendations. There are some things we're really proud of that we accomplished. You know, um, they're they're kind of very wonky in some regards. Um, but there was this incentive auction, first time any country has ever done that, where they used a spectrum auction in a complicated way to reallocate spectrum. Uh, that was very very uh, effective. There's a reverse auction for how we distribute universal service money that I think has been very effective and has saved lots of money, but has also been more effective for allocating the funds. Um, we have a public safety network that have been talked about for a long time. We now have it. That was one of the key recommendations. And when there are things like um, the Google Fiber project that I mentioned or Comcast Internet Essentials, 
Those grew out of discussions we had with the plan, but there were about 200 recommendations. Some of them were done, some of them weren't. Uh, but I, where I think we have probably fallen the most short is in closing the gaps uh, in terms of particularly adoption. Uh, I, I think that we are getting to a point where within a few years, uh, but I'm projecting certain political activities, we will be able to close what we might think of as the access divide, which is largely rural, where there aren't adequate networks. But in terms of adoption, that's that's a key one. The other one, which I think is kind of the untold gap, is we still are not utilizing broadband as effectively as we could to deliver healthcare, education, uh, job training, um, public safety, et cetera. And just going back to when the plan was was being created, what was the, the impetus behind getting the plan together? Like in hindsight now, obviously broadband is critical, but tell me a little bit about uh, just sort of what was the driving force behind getting that plan underway? Well, actually it came out of the Recovery Act. Um, I was then the co-lead of the Obama Tech Transition Team. And it was obvious as we were looking at the Recovery Act that there were lots of different things that needed to be done and it was almost a trillion dollars and about a third in taxes and a third in state governments and a third in kind of really interesting energy projects, things like Tesla came out of it, you know, stuff like that. Um, And not all of it was a success, but it was actually, I think, um, a lot more successful than people uh, remember. But one of the things we realized was that broadband was gonna be a really important resource in the global information economy, in terms of both economic growth and resiliency, as well as social progress. And, but we didn't have a good national way of thinking about uh, how to get broadband everywhere, how to get everybody on it, and how to utilize it better. And so we, we working with Congress, put in uh, the requirement to have the FCC do a plan. I personally had no uh, ambitions to run the plan, but few months after the legislation passed, I got pulled back into government uh, to, to do that. And it was, a, it was great, but that was the impetus for it. I, I would note that one of the interesting things about COVID, uh, when, when we were doing the plan, it was still seen, uh, broadband was still very much seen as kind of a luxury, a nice to have, but not must have. I think COVID has, has really made it clear, we need to get broadband everywhere. So there's a lot more political capital behind some of the ideas that we were proposing then. Gotcha. And it's a good point because it's I feel like broadband access is one of those issues that most people agree is necessary. It's not a partisan issue, um, but it hasn't been a partisan issue for a while. Why haven't we done more to close the broadband gap over the last, really the last decade since this plan was made available? Well, uh, that's a complicated question. Uh, I think if you were talking to the current uh, leadership of the FCC, they would say, you're factually inaccurate. Uh, We have made enormous progress. We have made all these investments and we've done all these things to stimulate 5G and yada, yada, yada. Um, I think that we have spent an enormous amount of money in rural America, not always wisely. We are spending it much more wisely than we did in the past. But I think there are still certain things that, that should be done. And uh, I, I would be critical of the current FCC in terms of how they've handled the Lifeline program, um, which is the program developed under the Reagan administration to make sure that 100% of Americans were connected to a phone 
uh, system, which had to be revised. And we, we laid out how to revise it and how to revise it. And the FCC under Tom Wheeler made a lot of progress in revising it um, uh, so that it includes broadband. But I think that program needs some fundamental restructuring. Um, one of the problems that frankly has really been kicked down the road, we, we told the FCC to change it, but the funding mechanism for how we fund these universal service programs um, is based in the market realities of about 1995. Uh, and it's time that we really fix it. What, and what does that mean? I mean, what, what exactly about the system is archaic or, or outdated? So the way we fund universal service, and there are three legs, really, there, there's more, but three major legs to the stool. One is uh, deployment in rural areas where market forces will not drive deployment. A second is a subsidy for low-income Americans. That's the Lifeline program. The third is the so-called E-rate program, which provides funds for anchor institutions, schools, libraries, healthcare facilities. They are funded by a fee imposed basically on long-distance revenues. It's more complicated than that, but back in 1995, long-distance revenues was a big and growing market. But now because of the way we're doing these kind of communications over the internet. We don't do as many long distance calls. And so the revenue base, again, slightly more complicated, but the big point is the revenue base is shrinking, but the cost of providing all of those services to make it universal, those are growing, the demand is growing. And so when you have a shrinking revenue base and a growing need, what happens is the fee has to go up. So I th I, if I recall correctly, 10 years ago, the fee was approximately 10%. It's now 26.6%. That's a cancer on the program. If, if we don't do something to change it, 26 will become 30. It'll become 35. The incentives to find ways around it will be too great, and the whole system will collapse just when we need it to actually fund more things. So that's a big problem. Uh, switching to just the political environment, clearly... Uh Back in 2010, things were different than they are now. I'm just curious how the the sort of the fact that it's gotten a lot more partisan, how that affects the appetite for investment or finding solutions in this area. Um, I think one of the interesting things about universal service is it's kind of balanced. I mean, you have the program that I described that affects rural America and is largely Republican. That affects urban America, uh, the low income, which is more. It's not all um, democratic areas, but but definitely serves you know uh, democratic areas. And then you have schools and libraries. Well, that serves everybody. So there's a been a kind of a bipartisan uh, support for the program. But what you've seen over the last few years is a lot of money flowing to rural, a lot of concern about waste, fraud, and abuse in the urban program. But but they don't apply that filter to the rural problem. And then in the same way, uh, the Schools and Libraries actually has made a lot of progress toward funding uh, connections to all the classrooms. Um, that one does seem to be a little bit more in the bipartisan. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, obviously, having served in both the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, it won't surprise anyone uh, who, my, um, uh, who I'm voting for uh, in November. And I am somewhat hopeful that... Um, if there's a Biden presidency, there will be kind of a return to what we saw. I, look, 
I'm not saying there's going to be a return on every issue, but in terms of broadband, I think there can again be a bipartisan connection uh, consensus. Let's focus on how we finish the job. I mean, it's it's almost certain that Biden will have a structure bill that will have a lot of elements of the House Democratic bill, which would very significantly fund uh, connecting uh, all communities to broadband. And I think um, in addition, find new ways to make sure low-income folks uh, can afford broadband. Got it. And, and looking at the, the current FCC administration, you talked a little bit about some of the ways they have or haven't handled things well, but you know, Chairman Ajit Pai has made broadband access a priority, and he's mostly focused on, on rural access. But what do you think generally of, of what the FCC has done with broadband access? Uh, how many hours do we have for this? <laughs> uh, you know, look, I, I I want to be reserved in my. I would be critical of him on a number of fronts. I would say he's actually done some things uh, better than than I might have expected. Uh, I you know, work part-time as uh, an advisor to Wall Street investors on certain, on telecom policy issues. And I, you know, there's, these these are complicated things. And having served in the chairman's office as I did back during the Clinton era, I'm sympathetic to uh, the struggles he's he's under. I would say that I think it it disturbs me that as a leader of an institution, he has chosen to politicize the institution. It's always going to look with well, Washington. It's a political thing. But for but just to give you an example, um, he gave a speech in which he said, "When I came to the FCC, there was there was nothing going on with Spectrum." Well, that's absolutely false. In fact, every auction he has held, including the current CBRS auction, which is going on now, had its roots in a proceeding that started under the Obama administration and millimeter wave and the mid-band. The C-band auction, which will start in December, was different. But frankly, the C-band auction could have been started a couple of years earlier. We could have already done it. So to the extent we're looking toward 5G, I actually think that some of the problems that the current FCC has had, both with um, the Department of Commerce and others in the executive branch, as well as their own slowness in deciding what I think are kind of certain, you know, on the C-band took two years to finally decide that it should be a public auction, an FCC one auction. Those are those are places where I would be critical. And I think those delayed getting more broadband out everywhere. But I don't really, I mean, I think these are, um, I, and, and I do think he has not done a good job of making a lifeline better. And I think he has kicked the can down the road for reforming universal service. But having having said that, look, to the extent I have criticisms of the Trump administration on a variety of policies affecting digital equity and inclusion, for example, I, I, I'm not sure the FCC would be on the top of my list for where my criticisms would be. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I, I look at the speeches of the Republican leadership claiming to have solved lots of problems that I don't think they've solved. The facts don't line up. Talk a bit about sort of rural access again. Uh, you know, we've seen communities like like Chattanooga and these these communities tap into local power companies uh, for broadband access or create co-ops to create service. Why aren't there more of those examples out there? Well, I've actually worked with uh, over a hundred communities after I left the National Broadband Plan. I started something called Gig.U, which was focused on college towns, and that led to a bunch of other things. 
Um, and the idea wasn't so much that every community build their own network, but it was how do we accelerate getting gigabit capable networks into these communities with college towns being kind of the communities that would both want them the most and in a way need them the most. And I would say the, the primary reason is, uh, first of all, Chattanooga is a little bit different because they had a, a public power company. And in places where you have public power companies like Huntsville, Alabama, and some others, you see more of these. Um, you also see more of these in rural areas where, frankly, they don't have a choice, um, where there isn't a cable company, for example, where there's a phone company. And rural phone companies are struggling, but they're not going to invest in fiber if they don't have to, because they're getting as much money as they can. It, it always makes sense for a company if they can make more money on an embedded um, investment to just make that money rather than invest new capital. So that's that's a big problem. Having said that, one of the most exciting things going on, I think a lot, there's a lot of electric co-ops which are now branching out and off, offering broadband. So you're starting to see that a lot more in rural areas. But look, building, investing in, operating, maintaining, selling, broadband services, these are difficult things. Most local governments don't have the expertise to do them. Where they do them, there have been a number of very good, successful cases. Uh, there are some who think that every local government should do them. But look, local governments are really struggling now, now more than ever because of COVID. Um, these are hard things to do. But uh, I am totally in favor, and we said this in the broadband plan, of local governments having a right to do anything they want. Because they're so close to the people, if they're going to do something dumb, usually the voters know about it a lot faster and kick them out. It's a lot easier to kick out a mayor than a president. You know, having having said that, I I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, a lot more activity that's that's more locally based, um, because there are lots of communities that now realize they really need to uh, have the kind of networks that allow them to participate in the 21st century information economy. Got it. And lastly, I'll let you go after this. Uh, just generally, in terms of closing the gap, like, do you think we'll actually ever fully close the gap? Is that is that reality or is that just sort of a pipe dream? I think there are a couple of different gaps. Um, but when you say fully close, if you mean 100%, I think the answer is frankly no. Um, we don't have 100% of homes in America that have running water, indoor plumbing, um, uh, electricity, you know, we're, we're in the mid 90s to high 90s on telephones, on broadcast television, et cetera. And those have been going on for a lot longer. But if we take a number like 97, 98, yes, we can definitely get um, next generation capable networks to 98% of the homes uh, in, the, in, the, in the near future, within a few years, we have to allocate some more money, probably needs to come from Congress, that's doable. I think we can increase the adoption rate from kind of the mid 60s and low income communities to making it similar to the adoption rate in high income communities, which would be in the, in the 90s. That's a tougher thing because it's not just about money, but it does require money. It's also about digital literacy and things like that. I think it's really important to 100% close the homework gap. That one we really ought to be striving. Every child in school needs to have a broadband connection at home, needs a device. We can do that, 
And there's some cities that are doing some very interesting things like Chicago is doing some very interesting things on that. That's an achievable thing, but we got to focus on it. The biggest gap to me that I'd like to close, it can't be measured in the same way, which is the utilization gap. I think, and I, I think your, your readership would really understand this. It's really interesting the way we employ broadband today in ways we didn't think about, even though we were capable of doing it. You know, I, um, I'm Jewish, we celebrate Passover, we have seders. It was kind of sad that this last year we couldn't all gather in person. But I live in Washington, D.C. My mom lives in L.A. where I grew up. And we invited her to join us in the Seder. And I'm thinking and it was great to have her. And I'm thinking, you know, the last 10 years, or maybe not 10, but we, the Zoom has been around a while. You know, um, we're thinking differently. You have lots of parents um, having tutors on broadband with their kids, enhancing their educational abilities. You know, we should be thinking one of the most amazing things, by the way. Fun fact, in 2010, I think the National Broadband Plan may have been the only federal government document to warn about a pandemic. We didn't warn about it in the sense that we said a pandemic is coming, though we kind of said that. But, I, but what we did say was, if a pandemic comes, we're really going to have to move to telehealth. And that's exactly what happened. We had a number of recommendations for how to do that when um, uh, the pandemic hit. About 1% of doctor visits were over a telehealth kind of uh, facility. Now it's about 20%. We're never going back. But the technology was what, wasn't what was holding us back. So I think it's that utilization gap where we're hopefully really going to see progress. And that's just limited by imagination uh, and things like how you do insurance copays and stuff like that. Uh, but that's where I'm optimistic that... Uh, uh, once we solved the first two problems of access and adoption, we really could improve the way we deliver essential services in this country. That's it for our chat with Blair Levine. Stay tuned tomorrow as we talk to Verizon about the role of cellular service in closing the broadband gap. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.